Join ResU in thoughtful conversations that will pique your curiosity and expand your mind. ResU's thought leadership and partners will introduce unique ideas and ways that help listeners make choices that are influential, mindful, and impactful. Taking charge of your own healthcare and taking charge of your pain and saying, this is where I'm at, it allows the provider or the practitioner to really understand where you are. And then we can have that discussion of where do we need to go. Welcome to our podcast. I'm Dr. Tree Scanlon, President of Resurrection University. As always, ResU talks to interesting people and covers topics that are sometimes non-traditional and maybe even controversial. This edition is no exception. Today's episode of Thinking Out Loud is about the use of essential oils as an alternative method to opioids or pain relief for pain management. Joining me today is Dr. Christopher Galloway, who is on our faculty at Resurrection University, and he's also a proud graduate of both of our master's and doctoral degree programs in nursing. For the completion of his doctorate of nursing practice earlier this year, his scholarly research was on the important topic, so we're happy to have him here to share his discoveries. Outside of ResU, Dr. Galway is the owner of Elemental Care Health and Wellness Center, a primary care facility in Crest Hill, Illinois. It is one of the few nurse-led, owned and operated clinics in the state of Illinois. Chris, welcome to our podcast. Thank you for having me. Chris, before we get started, I just heard that you recently received an award. Can you tell us about it? I did. So I was honored to receive the 2019 Marie Lindsay Spirit Award from the Illinois Society for Advanced Practice Nursing just this past weekend. This award is given to one advanced practice nurse yearly in Illinois that demonstrates excellence as a role model for other APRNs, has made a significant contribution to the improvement of patient care, is creative in their approach to issues which impact advanced practice nursing, and utilizes current evidence-based practice to enhance quality of care. Awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. So, Chris, you know, part of what we're talking about today is definitely the essential oils, and we'll get to that. But can we talk about pain first? You know, what are the real causes of pain that most people are dealing with? So, so really pain can, can come in many different varieties. You know, it comes from inflammation within the body. It can come from potentially a surgical procedure where inflammation is caused. Um, anytime that the mu receptors are compromised, we, we really get this feeling of pain. And so, so again, it can be chronic, it can be short-term. You know, we're going to talk about this pain and, and how we address pain. Sure. Is it fair to say that we're living in a society today that people want quick fixes to their problems? So they will want the healthcare provider to provide them with a quick fix to their pain so they don't feel it anymore. Right. So that's what happens, right? People get in a situation where they're experiencing pain. They go to the provider. They want the pain to stop. Mm-hmm. Their focus isn't necessarily on treating the problem. It's more, let's let's get this pain under control, and then we can try to figure out the problem later. So so the quick fix to that has been opioids and, mm-hmm. and other modalities of medications that potentially mask the symptoms instead of, instead of really treating the root cause of the problem. Yeah, and I think that's the problem, right? People start feeling better, and then they don't really go back to their practitioner to find out what the root cause of their problem was so that they can get better or it doesn't happen again. Right. I mean, it's different if you have surgery. You know that's a short-term issue. But even in those situations, there's a lot of really strong drugs that are being prescribed that then people potentially get addicted to, correct? Well, they do, right? So we give those medications to patients coming out of surgery 
surgery, the important piece is that we really follow up with those patients and educate those patients and don't leave them on the medications for extended periods of time. So in the last few years, we have been hearing a lot about the use or overuse of opioids leading to potentially accidental death. People use opioids to feel better, yet some have become addicted, some overdose, and some have died. Can you shed some light on this opioid use and abuse? Sure. So so according to the CDC, from 1999 through 2017, there have been over 700,000 individuals died due to a drug overdose, where in 2017 alone, there were over 47,000 opioid-related deaths in the United States. It's really a staggering number. Um, and what's even more shocking, I guess, is that Illinois is in the top 10 states to wow. have this opioid abuse. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, for the common folk that are living, listening to us, can you tell us what an opioid is or some examples of what those drugs are called? Sure. So, so there's a few different classifications of opioids, um, and they're classified by the FDA as controlled substances. So there's Schedule three opioids and Schedule two opioids. Um, Schedule three opioids are things like tramadol, or buprenorphine. We use tramadol to treat minor pain that, that anti-inflammatories and, and non-controlled pain relievers would normally take care of but are not taking care of their pain. And then we would use buprenorphine as a uh, treatment for those who are suffering from opioid abuse or misuse. And then we have Schedule two opioids, things like hydromorphone, hydrocodone, fentanyl, dilaudid, oxycodone. Those are the more strong. Those are the stronger ones, okay. right? So the, the lower the number of schedule the more potential for abuse and misuse. Is there a Schedule 1? There is a Schedule 1. And with Schedule 1s, um, there's things like heroin is a Schedule 1 drug. Okay. Currently, as it stands, marijuana is a Schedule 1. Well, that in Illinois is going to be changing sh- soon, right? That is true, January yeah. 1st. Yeah, and, and we do have another podcast on that that anybody can listen to. So how often are these opioids or these really strong pharmaceutical drugs prescribed to people in pain? You know, they're, they're prescribed quite often. More than 240 million opioid prescriptions were given out um, in 2017, according to the CDC, which is a staggering number. However, it's hard to quantify exactly why those prescriptions were written. Okay. Surgery, is it each individual prescription if they're in the hospital, that sort of thing. However, we do see that typically patients come in, they've already tried their you know, ibuprofen, their acetaminophen, However, they get to the doctor and the doctor says, well, you've tried this, this, and this. Let's, Let's try put the you next. on a hydrocodone, right? <laughs> or, or something of that nature. Let's try the next best thing that we can get you out of pain. Mm-hmm. When again, we go back to what we said earlier, where we really need to start focusing on, on treating the problem, mm-hmm. which, is, which is that inflammation or that, that compromised tissue. So in your practice... If someone comes to you with recurrent pain like that, how do, how do you treat that? I mean, besides, and we're, let's not talk about the essential oils yet because we're going to get sure. to that in a minute. But what are the sure. other modalities that you use to help them control the pain? And then how do you help them get to the point where you understand what the root cause of the problem is? So one of the things that we do first is anybody who comes in with chronic pain, we really have that discussion with how long has this been happening? How long have you been on this medication? What medications have you been on? Um, and it's surprising to us to see these patients coming in on on hundreds of different types of medications that they've tried in the past. So really our focus is to say, okay, let's see where your pain medication is. Let's, let's talk about alternatives such as acupuncture or massage therapy, physical therapy, 
um, and even specialists, getting them out to specialist providers that can look into further further reasons why this pain may be occurring so we can resolve the problem. Mm-hmm. It's really creating that, that education with the patient from the beginning saying, here's where you're at. We're going to work with you, but really our goal is to uncover the problem to to get out of this situation that you're currently in of just masking your pain. Sure. And we are not diminishing in any way, shape, or form pain. Not at all. Right. I mean, pain is real. It is very real. It is, you know, like you said, it can be from surgery. It can be from an accident. It can be just an autoimmune disease that causes inflammation. It could be many different things. It could be your diet, right? I mean, so Mm -hmm. we are not saying these aren't important drugs. It's just shouldn't be your your first course of action potentially they're very important and and most of the time we find that it, it we can treat the pain with other modalities it's just that this one has become become common mm-hmm. whereas if we if we look at it in a surgical perspective it is the medication that we go to first trying to to treat a post surgical patient just with ibuprofen mm-hmm. may be difficult depending on the type of surgery they're having so these, these medications definitely do serve a purpose in healthcare. Mm-hmm. We just need to start working on, on kind of defining what it is that we can do other than just prescribing this type of medication. Yeah. And I think there's another thing that we need to talk about first before we get to the, the real topic is, is how to judge the level of pain of an individual, right? And so I've been in many physicians' offices or healthcare practitioners' offices, and they've got this little chart of smiley faces or frowny faces. And you look at them and you're like, I don't know which one. They really all kind of look the same. There's another way or another scale that you use. And can you talk about that? Yeah. So the scale that we use is called the Heritage Comparative Pain Scale. And this this pain scale is modeled off of the Likert 1 through 10 scale. So, you know, we say on a scale of 1 to 10, how severe is your pain? Well, what does a 7 mean? And what does a 5 mean? What yeah. does a 10 mean? And some patients will say 30. And what does that mean? So the Heritage Comparative Pain Scale is based off of this Likert pain scale, where we are able to kind of break down and give common identifiers to each pain score. Um, so for instance, one being a mosquito bite, it's barely noticeable. It goes away quickly and it doesn't last. That would be a score of one. Mm -hmm. And then it goes so far as to say a score of 10, where a score of 10 would be that the patient is going to pass out within 15 to 30 seconds from pain and not due to blood loss after a traumatic injury. So, so when patients come into our clinic, we're able to kind of gauge where their pain really is because they're utilizing the same scoring system each time versus saying, I'm a 10 today, I'm an 8 tomorrow. Right. What's changed? Yeah. You know, I, I deal with a pain condition, so I've dealt with this for a, a million years, right? You get to the point where you're like, I don't know what to tell you what my pain level is because what are you comparing it to? And this is a good way for everyone to be on the same page and say, this is why I feel a six or a seven or a 10 or whatever it is. And it allows me to really to have that conversation with the patient of what is pain, right? They come Mm -hmm. in, they tell me I'm at a nine. Well, nine is pretty incapacitated according to this scale that we use, but they're playing a game on their phone. And so we're able to have that conversation with them of, is it really a nine or where are we really at so that we can gauge your pain better so we can treat this better? Yeah. Because at a nine, that tells me additional interventions need to happen. Mm-hmm. Whereas maybe your pain really is at a three, you just aren't comfortable living at a three. So you say nine right. to try to get something else to help ease your discomfort. I, I think that would help a lot of practitioners and and the consumers themselves, right? Because yep. then then you're getting a better diagnosis. 
Well, and if we can start to work on getting this out into the community, we might be able to have patients consistently doing it across different different continuums. For instance, they come into my office, their pain may be a four on our scale, but then they end up in the ER. They may report a pain of four, and the ER may say, nothing, nothing's really wrong, because we're so used to hearing everybody give us a number higher than 10 sure. when 10 is the max. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's talk about essential oils for a minute. What are they really? I actually like to refer to them as the original medicine because it's all about plants and herbs, and that's really where medicine started. So can you talk a little bit about essential oils, and how do you know if you're buying a good one or not? So essential oils, there, there's so many different varieties out there, and it's it's difficult because the FDA doesn't regulate what goes into essential oils. So you'll find some some companies provide essential oils that are quote-unquote pure Mm -hmm. or pure therapeutic grade. Well, what does that mean? And so it's important to understand what your oils have in them. Um, There are some places that you can get oils that will tell you a common oil of peppermint, not for internal consumption, Mm -hmm. not, you know, do not come in contact with skin. So my question begs to be, what do you do with that oil? Right. Because if you diffuse it, you're taking it internally. Mm-hmm. And peppermint is a plant that we all eat. We eat the oil, the extract of the peppermint plant all the time. So why would it tell me that it can't be taken internally or applied to my skin? So it really makes you question what chemicals are in this to right. extend the life. So we really need to make sure that we are looking at what ingredients are in there, really knowing the company behind it, and and kind of making sure that they're going through that process of rigorous testing to ensure public safety. So, um, and I'm not going to ask you for brands because we're not here to um, endorse any brands, but when you go to a website for an essential oil company, is there a certificate of analysis? Is there some sort of indication of what's in and what isn't in the product? So sure. So there are, there are many companies that do provide what's in their oils and, and whether they've been diluted or not and what chemical constituents might be included. Those are the essential oil companies that you really want to sort of gravitate towards because mm-hmm. they're being open and honest about what's in it. Now, if somebody comes in and says, we have nothing in our oils, then you want to take it the next step further and really look at why why they're saying that. What is behind that? Who's tested it? Do you mm-hmm. have outside companies testing your oils to make sure that they are pure? So really have to do your homework on, on making sure that you're utilizing an essential oil that's safe because if it isn't safe and you follow a modality that you find, to manage whatever ailments you're you're working towards, you could put yourself in danger. Sure, and sure. And that's where the struggle lies. So I, I, what I'm hearing from you then is make sure there's some third-party testing available on the website to, to make you feel comfortable what's in or isn't in the I product. I agree with that. Yes. Okay, great. So let's get down to your research. First, tell us what led you to it. So what led me to, to conducting the research I did on essential oils versus opioids was really the passion that I've always had for holistic treatment and really kind of getting back to the grassroots and saying, what what else is out there? Mm-hmm. I've got to believe there's something more than just this. Pharmaceuticals, right. basically. Right. So we think back into, into biblical times and, and the three wise men, and they're bringing in frankincense, myrrh, and gold. Well, when you really look at the chemical properties of frankincense, we really see that it's a strong anti-inflammatory. And so you always have to sit back and wonder, was there a reason for that, right? Was Mary struggling? And and it was already known that this is what we were bringing in. So 
So is that what they used? We know essential oils have been used for thousands of years. What makes it any different now than it was then? Mm-hmm. And, and in Eastern medicine, it's used as a prescription. Oh, right. Where yeah. here we are in Western medicine, and it's kind of seen as taboo, although I think that is changing in the American culture to get towards a more holistic approach to healthcare. And I think if people think about it as the original medicines, that it really is derived from plants and herbs, mm-hmm. then it doesn't feel as snake oil-ish, right? Correct. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because, you know, I, I utilize essential oils in practice, and, and, and you'll have some patients kind of say, oh, snake oils, witch doctor, but... Mm-hmm. But really, it's more just educating them them on where do they come from yeah. and what do they do and being able to give them quality research to say, here is what it does. Yeah. So and, that led me to it. And we're going to talk about your research, but really essential oils can help you with anything from fatigue, sleep, bloody noses, all kinds of crazy Anxiety, stuff. Right. Stress. You know? so, oh, so there's a lot out there about it, but we're really talking today about its effect on pain. Yes. So can you talk about your research and and what you found uh, and which essential oils you used um, and what what kind of results you got. Sure, sure. So the essential oils that I used for my research or was studying in my research was peppermint, copaiba, and frankincense. Um, So frankincense, obviously, as I stated earlier, has really strong anti-inflammatory properties. And and we know that when we decrease inflammation, we decrease pain. Yep. So that was a really important one for me to bring in, especially because it is one of the oldest known elements out there that we that we can utilize. Peppermint has a really great um, topical anesthetic effect and and kind of that cooling sensation and and really decreasing inflammation in the same process. We see peppermint extract and oils in a lot of our over the counter modalities for yep. pain. So that was important for me to use as well. And then copaiba, copaiba's sesquiterpene profile is very similar to that of other anti-inflammatories. And so that really brings into light that that these oils do decrease inflammation. And I wanted to, to see, do they really have a significant impact on the reduction of physical pain mm-hmm. when applied topically or taken internally? And so as I conducted the research, we... Um, we found that 87 percent of our of our studied group experienced a two point or greater reduction in physical pain when applied topically with all of the oils individually as well as combined. Wow! So that's pretty significant. It is. It is. And you know, when we when we look at the research side of things and get all technical, it was determined to be statistically significant. So that's sure. what's neat about this is it can be replicated. Yeah. Which gives some some good foundation into using these essential oils. So in your research, it was only a topical use only. You did not have anybody ingesting. So we so we studied whether they utilized it topically, okay. whether they digested, you know, took it internally, or whether they used it aromatically. But when we came to the results, we really found that topical use was very consistent. Mm-hmm. And, and when we did our statistical analysis, that's really what showed promise and statistical significance in, in the reduction of this physical pain. So the study group that you had was how large? So the study group we had, we we surveyed just shy of 300 people. And when all was said and done about with the responses we got back and with taking out any omissions for partial completions or, you know, early dropouts from the research, we ended with um, 87 mm-hmm. total patients in this in this population group. And from that, when you're looking at a small urban clinic, such as the one that I work at, it actually is quite significant because it, it, it's, it's about 25% of our, of our pain patients. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, great. So I personally use alternative and functional medicine regularly. How big is this industry and what can you share about the alternative medicine world? So with essential oils, we consume about 49% of all essential oil produced in the United States. So it tells me that we use it a lot. Mm-hmm. The bigger question for me is, does the public know how to use them right. and use them effectively? And that's, again, another reason why I said this research has to be done because we can go out and we can find anything on these on these essential oils and anybody can say anything about them because they aren't FDA regulated. And the hope is that as we continue to learn more about these oils and do more evidence-based research, we're going to be able to give the public solid foundations on what oils to use for what. So back to your research again, you used the three different um, oils <laughs> and you, I guess, already said this, you know, frankincense is part of the three wise men story, right? Yes. So can you tell us about the elements of these oils and why you studied these three in particular? Really, I wanted to to kind of go back and focus on the anti-inflammatory properties, mm-hmm. right? We, you know, through doing a, a literature search, I found that pain primarily is caused due to inflammation. Yeah. And so if we target the problem, as I like to do, we're targeting the inflammation while relieving pain in the same breath. And so these anti-inflammatory oils, when applied topically to the areas of inflammation, really do decrease pain. Mm-hmm. It's not to say that they are a replacement for opioids or for other medication alternatives, but really what it is is saying it definitely has a place. Mm-hmm. And so these oils were 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 kind of among the top three that I was able to find some good evidence-based practice on the utilization and their anti-inflammatory properties. Great. So your hypothesis in your study was what, and and you kind of already talked about the results, but could you go through that again? So we really talk, as far as the hypothesis, when I was working with my my scholarly team, as I was conducting this research, we said, let's let's go big. Mm -hmm. Let's really make a lofty goal and, and see if it does impact us the way we would like it to. So the hypothesis was the, that the use of peppermint, copaiba, or frankincense essential oils has a significant relationship in the reduction of physical pain identified by a two-point or greater reduction in 70% of the uh, respondents according to the Heritage Comparative Numerical Pain Rating Scale. So I know you don't know the 87 or 300 people off sure. the top of your head, right? Sure. But what kind of diseases or symptoms were you kind of seeing as a trend potentially? So if a listener is saying, okay, I've got back trouble all the time, or I've got fibromyalgia all the time, mm-hmm. I know this may be something I need to talk to my practitioner about. Sure. Yeah. So so we did review what types of pain these patients were experiencing. And the, the top three that we got were knee pain, low back pain, and abdominal pain. Okay. And so what we're finding is that it's not just utilized for one specific thing, right? Abdominal pain may be digestion, maybe, you know, adhesions or scarring. Low back pain may just be due to overuse or strain or even something more anatomically that's, that's problematic, that's causing the inflammation. But when we look at these oils, it's fascinating to me to see that they do cover multiple ailments that patients are experiencing. Mm-hmm. That's great. So... 
What's our takeaway today for our listeners interested in learning more about essential oils to manage their pain? And what would you suggest they do for more information? So really one of the things that I think is important for essential oils, but just pain in general, is to start to standardize what pain is, Mm -hmm. right? And kind of go along this universal pain rating scale that we can actually, number one, allow providers to see or better understand where their patient's at in regards to pain and where we need to go to. So I think that's a huge piece of of the takeaway. I also think that we need to uh, to really understand that essential oils do have a place in the continuum of care for physical pain, not just based on the research that I did, but even on the research that is already outstanding there. And then we need to be more educated. So providers need to be more apt to wanting to treat patients with alternative methods, One study that I looked at said that uh, only 27% of providers felt any comfort at all in recommending essential oils for pain relief, whereas when they were asked a follow-up question, over 70% of them said, I would be apt if I had more education. Mm, Okay. And so it's not just educating the general public, it's also educating the providers and really making sure that we're all on the same page with how these work. Now, does that mean the FDA needs to get involved? That's yet to be known. Mm -hmm. But I definitely think it is something that we really need to consider. And and hopefully we as providers who are trying to mitigate the risks that are out there really look into these options. You know, if you're out there and you're looking for additional information on alternative approaches to pain management, specifically with essential oils, reaching out to the uh, National Association of Holistic Aromatherapy and looking for a provider through their website or even just, you know, doing a local search on holistic providers in your area you may find some that that really have knowledge on the topic and how to manage it. And then one last thing as far as, you know, kind of educating providers. So we educated patients and we can get them in touch with holistic providers, but really educating providers. We're, I'm working with a colleague of mine, Dr. Christine Totes, on a microcertification course for essential oils in primary care, which we hope to uh, have ready for providers and the general public come spring of 2020 with resurrection. That's awesome. Let me go back and ask you one question, though, about this Heritage um, Comparative Pain Scale. Mm-hmm. Is that something that a, a common person just doing a search on the internet can find and then take to their provider to be able to talk about it. So this was a struggle for me. And I knew when I did this research that I had to find a pain scale that was going to not only say one through 10, but give me some consistency in my results. And so as I was looking, I have previously always just used on a scale of one to 10, tell me where your pain's at. Right. But that's not good enough for research. Mm -hmm. We need a little bit more. And so as I was looking for a comparative and I just typed in, I happened to type in comparative pain scale, this one did come up. But when you just type in pain scale, it didn't. Okay. So a common person doing a search can actually just go out, type this name in. And it's H-A-R-I-C-H, mm-hmm. Comparative Pain Scale. It'll and pop right up. It'll pop right up. And that is something they can then take to their practitioner to have a better discussion about, I really am a seven or whatever that is. And they can justify that pain level, right? And would, that will help not only them, but their practitioner. I would love to see that happen. I think <laughs> I think that that goes into the next step of taking charge of your own healthcare and taking charge of your pain and saying, this is where I'm at. Mm -hmm. It allows the provider or the practitioner to really understand where you are. And then we can have that discussion of where do we need to go? What is an acceptable level to live at on a daily basis? So Chris, you own an Elemental Care Health and Wellness Center, which is a nurse practitioner led clinic. First of all, 
what is a nurse practitioner and what do you have the ability to do in the state of Illinois? So as a nurse practitioner in the state of Illinois, um, we are able to provide care to patients um, in the primary care setting, as well as some specialties, as long as you've done the additional uh, education that's required of it. So nurse practitioners can, can treat the common cold, can treat you know common ailments, they can treat chronic disease management, things like hypertension, diabetes. They aren't allowed to do surgery, um, so we utilize specialists for those things. So you really are like a family doctor in, in the old sense, right? You go to the doctor to get your shots. You go to the doctor because you have a sinus infection. You go because you have pain. Yeah, you can't do sure. surgery, but in, in your clinic, you are the front provider to your patients. Correct. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, a lot of patients will interchange the two between doctor and you know, nurse practitioner, they don't come in and say, oh, I want to see the nurse practitioner. They all come in and say, I want to see the doctor. And sure. so, so I am proud of my background of being a nurse first. Mm-hmm. And, and so I will always help educate them on what it is that we do, though it may be very similar in some aspects. We still come from that foundation of caring. That's so I think that's the big difference, to me. right? To me, you are very similar to an osteopathic doctor because you, you actually care about the whole being versus just the symptoms that I'm coming in with. Correct. Yeah. So I would compare us more to a to a DO than I would to an MD because of that holistic approach to care. For instance, in our clinic down in down in Crest Hill, we we allot an hour for every new patient mm-hmm. visit so that we can really sit down and find out where they came from, what they've done in the past, where they're at, what are their goals, what does their future look like, so we can understand not just the physical well-being, but the emotional and the spiritual well-being of the patient as well. And do you get to things, especially maybe with some of the elderly patients, of do they eat? Do they have people that that surround them? Do they talk to people? Because really, when you are going to look at someone holistically, you're looking at them from every aspect, right? Whether you said spiritual, but emotional. Mm -hmm. But it, it really is sometimes the basics of food security it could be you know do i get to out to get fresh air those kinds mm-hmm. of things and you you talk to your patients about those kinds of things also every time we okay. we have a we have sort of a set of questions that we will ask every individual and then based on their responses or needs or just instinct we will ask additional questions so the the last takeaway then is know what you're talking about, be an advocate for yourself when you go talk to your practitioner absolutely absolutely it's it's more than just saying I'm in pain. Yeah. I need to be able to relate to that so that I can help you along this continuum. Great. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Stay tuned to the ResU podcast here on WGN Plus for more episodes with ResU thought leaders and partners that will introduce unique ideas and ways to help listeners make choices that are influential, mindful, and impactful. Res you, it's amazing to be needed.